another episode of Strategic Dialogues. On this episode, we'll be focusing on the global humanitarian landscape. And I think it's important because we know that the contemporary armed conflict landscape, it's raising very pivotal questions for not only humanitarian action, but also international humanitarian law. Complex and protracted conflicts in various regions of the world. You have Syria, Yemen, Afghanistan, DRC, Central African Republic, and you also have deteriorating and worsening humanitarian crises such as Ethiopia and Yemen. And all these are highlighting the imperative of an adaptive and a dynamic international humanitarian response um, system and how this, this humanitarian responses need to be attuned to the challenges of armed conflicts and the vulnerabilities of civilian populations. At the operational level, this implies that international humanitarian action also has to grapple with major upheavals and challenges that speak to these trends, not only in, in the strategic element, but also in the operational sense. So we have, we've seen, for instance, that there's been a trend towards urbanization of armed conflicts. We've seen the emergence of new technologies of warfare, and we've seen we've seen a blurring of boundaries between your counterterrorism approaches and compliance with international humanitarian law. Furthermore, climate change is also emerging as a risk multiplier in conflicts with far-reaching humanitarian consequences. As we mark the 160th anniversary of the pub publication of Henry Dunant's classic text, a Memory of Salfarino in 1862. This is the powerful book that inspired the founding of the International Red Cross and the Red Crescent Movement and the first Geneva Convention of 1864. We need to constantly review the compliance and the enforcement of international humanitarian law in light of the evolving nature of warfare and the key normative shifts that sit at the interface between humanitarian law and human rights. These are pertinent issues especially during this period when, when we're recording this episode against the backdrop of the war in Ukraine, which has undoubtedly resurfaced important questions about the rules of armed conflict and the rules on the conduct of hostilities in an international armed conflict. We've, we've also seen that it touches on issues such as proportionality, distinction, and precaution, among others. To deepen our understanding of international humanitarian action, and the enduring relevance of international humanitarian law in the contemporary conflict landscape, we have our guest today, Mr. Mamadou So. Mr. Mamadou So is the head of the delegation of the South of Southern Africa at the International Committee of the Red Cross. Prior to this, he served as operational coordinator for Africa and he's had an impactful career in the ICRC that has seen him serve across various regions in the world, including um, conflict zones in Gaza, in Mali, Afghanistan and Baghdad, among others. Mamadou, we are so delighted to have you. Thank you for making your, the time to be, and we are certainly looking forward to, to this discussion. Thank you very much, uh, my dear sister Faith. It's a, it's a great honor to share this, uh, this hour with you and your, and your listeners. Uh, and, uh, and thank you for the brilliant introduction that really uh, brings us right into the top, topic uh, of today. Yes, and I think... I, I want to jump right in and set the context for, for this discussion just to also allow you and setting you into the conversation. So just to give our listeners the kind of picture that we're looking at in, in terms of the humanitarian perspective, according to the UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, which 
publishes a, an annual global humanitarian overview report. I was looking at the 20, 2022 report. It's interesting. The figures tell quite a story. 183 million people uh, will need humanitarian assistance in across over 63 countries, and that this this assistance um, will total up to an estimated need of about $41 billion. And also we've seen that humanitarian needs have been driven up by emergence of new battlefields, new front lines, especially the, the one getting all the attention now being Ukraine, where we've seen about 10.5 million, last I checked, more than a quarter of the Ukrainian population being forcibly displaced by the military offensive and another 6.5 million internally displaced people, more than 4 million as reported displaced across international borders. On this side of the world, in Ethiopia, needs are also skyrocketing. The conflict, the conflict in Tigray is spreading into the Afar and Amhara regions and conflict remains an enduring feature in some parts of the Democratic Republic of Congo, in the Central African Republic, in Syria, and of course, not forgetting Yemen. So I th the first question I think I have for you is that looking at this somewhat very bleak picture, how are humanitarians responding to this changing landscape? And I think what I'm asking here is, are the, are the rules of international humanitarian law adequate in, in responding to contemporary conflicts? And also, what what do you see as some of the policy trends in the humanitarian sphere that we need to watch out for? What has changed since that pivotal 2016 World Humanitarian Summit? Yes, very, very good question, my my, my dear sister. Um, I mean, what, you, what you've what you alluded uh, and what you've described so eloquently about um, the, 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 the numbers of, uh, of war taking place now not only in Africa and around the world, but around the world, it, it kind of bespeaks of a failure that's uh, that's very apparent uh, in the in the international system. Uh, um, one thing that we we notice that is very clear is that uh, conflicts they are just protracted. Uh, uh, the overwhelming majority of armed conflicts today uh, they are protracted because uh, solutions are not brought to bear to end them. Uh, so, so, so therefore, uh, those of us who are in the humanitarian world, we find ourselves answering to needs of a people uh, that have been going through um, terrible uh, conflicts in their areas for years, if not for decades. Huh? Uh, and, and, and that in and of itself um, forces, us to, forces us to to look again the way we we interact with those populations, the way we design the support we give them, uh, because again, uh, we are not just uh, on the human on the emergency phase. We are sometimes uh, mixing both emergency needs and, and and needs that are much more long term. Uh, to be to to be more precise for, and give you more example to to your viewers, if you have an in, an, an emergency that erupts, uh, a war that starts, let's say today. And it, it and it lasts, let's say, a few months. Um, most of the response will be emergency response. So you will have the dialogue, obviously, with the protractors, with the protagonists. But you will want to rush in and also make sure that those who are displaced have enough food, they have enough uh, shelter, healthcare, etc. Um, and you can repair infrastructures if you can. Uh, but imagine this is happening not in weeks, not in months but it's happening for, for decades. 
So for decades, people are on the move. For decades, their, their lives have been turned upside down, etc. So that means that in addition to the classical needs that people generally would have in armed conflict, which are what I've alluded earlier, uh, in terms of health, education, health and uh, food, etc. Then you see the emergence of new needs that requires humanitarian actors to think differently. Uh, among these new needs are the needs for, for, for jobs, because when you are displaced for, for 20 years, at some point you, you're going to have to need jobs. You know, you can't just rely on, on, on handouts. They need uh, security. No? Uh, and, and again, that's a big challenge for, for, for us. Uh, they need education for their children because, again, uh, when you have uh, one or even two generation in refugee camps, um, etc., it's uh, you can't just keep them there and, and and hope for them to wait for the conflict to end to 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 start uh, building their lives. They need dignity that should not be waiting uh, for for the wars to end, and 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 many other issues like that that humanitarians have to address. Sometimes it's issues of um, social services, uh, utility services like uh, water. Um, and so, for example, in the Congo or, or in places such as Gaza, we find ourselves involved in, in, in multi-year, very costly projects, uh, which in normal time would have been done by, by development agencies. Uh, but... Uh, again, because of protracted conflict, because of the insecurity, humanitarians have to step in to, to, to fill those kind of gaps. Huh? And this is a big evolution um, that has happened um, in the last couple of decades uh, in, the, in the humanitarian sectors. And, and, and there are others, and I would, I would very much uh, enjoy we can discuss them. Thank you so much for that, because I think just in, in, in that introduction, you've actually pointed to a number of issues that we'll, we'll certainly touch on as we go along in this discussion. Because as you were speaking, I was just jotting down and some of the thoughts that came to the to, to, to the fore of my mind was, are things like when you're talking about the balancing of long-term needs versus the short-term emergencies and exigencies, what came to mind was this emerging debate about the humanitarian development nexus that's uh, becoming very important, especially when we talk about um, building resilience in societies, about the sustaining peace agenda, for instance, that the UN is is um, advancing. It raises very important questions about, um, yes, humanitarians are there to address the immediate needs, but there's, in terms of what you're talking about, a shifting landscape where there's protraction of conflicts, it, it Im immediately begins to touch on the question of ensuring that impact is um, immediate, yes, but it's also sustainable for the long-term needs. And I think attached to this very question of an evolving nature of warfare, evolving conflict landscape, I think also the other question that I would begin to hear from you, and I touched upon it in my introduction when I talked about this 160-year history of the ICRC and how the ICRC has had this very rich history and has been, has, the one, has been the one to set the tone as the guardian, the promoter of international humanitarian law under the, the Geneva Conventions. And let's take a step back into history. And here I'd like to, to hear some of your thoughts on what you think have been the main turning points, the pivotal points in, in the, the, the span of history that you think have shaped international humanitarian 
um, action. So talk to me about what you think are those pivotal moments that we need to, to take, um, to, to pay attention to when you're looking at, at how history has shaped um, the global humanitarian governance. Very good, very good question, Faith. Uh, I mean, um, when, when you look at uh, the evolution of war in the last hundred years, um, one of the most staggering shift, I guess, that we, we, we should start with is uh, the disproportionate uh, suffering of civilians. Uh, um, this is something that happened after the Second World War. Before, uh, most conflicts that, uh, that, that, uh, that we, where we were involved in, um, First World War, Second World War, they, they tended to have more, especially the first one, um, the, the percentage of, of, of militaries, and, and members of the armed forces who were killed uh, used to be an upward 90%, uh, and only perhaps 10% of civilians would be killed. This was reversed after, after World War II. Huh? And, and today, for, for most conflicts that you see, it's, we're talking about those figures. 90% uh, will be civilians killed, and only perhaps 10% of, uh, of, 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 of members of armed forces or... Um, non-state armed groups are are, are killed in these uh, in these modern wars, and that's uh, that's that's quite uh, that's quite shocking. Huh? Um, there are many reasons for it. Uh, one is because um, you know there are very few international armed conflicts uh, that oppose different armies. Uh, most conflicts now are tend to be internal. Uh, they tend to be very local. They tend to be opposed perhaps one army of a state uh, or one army of a state and its proxies and allies and so on against um, an armed groups or armed groups uh, within the territory of the state. Uh, um, and, and, and so there you have the battlefield not being places where armies meet, but it's where people live. Uh, uh, and when you think of most places where, 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 where that you see on television, this, this is very striking. Uh, um, this is one important um, uh, change that happened in, 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 in war zone. And that when you have these kind of notable changes, uh, it forces also humanitarian actors to change the way they, they work uh, uh, and the way they interact with, uh, with, with the parties to the conflict. So now, for example, in the ICRC, we, we, we note that globally um, there are more than 600 non-state armed groups uh, that are that are fighting in different armed conflicts and 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 an organization like us that needs to speak with both sides of of, of each conflict uh, have to find ways to reach out to them and 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 try to engage with them on on, on dialogues that uh, that will allow us to have access to people who suffer but also that will that will allow us to to just engage them themselves with uh, with res with respect to to their own conduct uh, of, of 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 and their own behavior uh, against the the civilian population. So this is a major shift, and and we've we've reacted towards that. There is another big shift that we've seen. You know, uh, if we look at African history back in the days when when our ancestors used to fight, there would be a messenger that is sent to from one king to the other, and they would tell him, you know, tell your Tell your your, your 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 king that he should meet me on such such date between these hills, right? Um, but nowadays it doesn't happen like that. Wars take place within cities, huh? um, and 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 that generates uh, tremendous human suffering. Huh? 
um, the, the, the the fighters they they commingle with uh, with the civilians. Um, the weapons that I use are uh, are not adapted. Uh, so if if we humanitarians are adapting to the new uh, to the new environments, the, the the weaponry are not adapted to the to the to the entire to the environment. So in most places where we work, where where war is taking place in cities. Uh, you see the use of certain artilleries uh, that used to be used in large open spaces that are used now in, in urban centers where uh, problems of, of distinction and, and proportionality is absolutely a reality. Um, you see these large explosive weapons uh, that are also being used in, in, in cities and, and they also are, are you know, they're, they're not illegal enough themse- themselves, but um, but but just the, the, the fact that they cannot, you know, be used in a proportionate manner um, uh, and, and the damages they cause to civilian lives and civilian properties is just tremendous. Uh, and, and this is also a phenomenon that we are confronted with. Another one that, uh, that we are confronted with is the nature of, of the non-state armed groups. Uh, so a lot of them, they, they operate in, uh, in, in large territories, sometimes in, in cross-border. Uh, um, you can think of those who are the groups that are involved in the Sahel. Uh, they, 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 they tend to be, many of them are the same between, between, between Mali, they're the same in Burkina, or they are affiliated with the ones in, in, in Niger, etc. Uh, when you go to the Lake Chad, so those, the ones that are there, you, you, you know, some of them are, or some of their, uh, their, their partners or what, what, what have you, they are in, in Nigeria. Others are in Cameroon, others are in Chad, others are also on 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 the, on the Niger side, uh, uh, and that's the same also is is true on in 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 many other areas where uh, where groups are operating in large, sometimes multinational or regional uh, setting, um, uh, creating also uh, vast territories of instability uh, um, across 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 Africa. Uh, more specifically, but also not only here. Uh, the same phenomenon exists in, in, in the Middle East. Um, we also see that um, armed groups did it today, um, when you think of the, the line between them, some of them, and, 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 and global syndicates of, of, uh, of narco-traffic and those kind of things, the line is quite blurred. So, so that means that when, you know the, 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 the territory where the armed conflicts are taking place, uh, where we are acting, uh, we are dealing with a multi-layered, multifaceted uh, environment with actors that are complex and complicated. They multiply, they metamorphosize. Um, in, 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 a, in, a, in a territory, you can have 20 groups, you can have 10 groups. Tomorrow, the alliances are changing. Etc. And all these things, the humanitarian actors need to be aware of it because we share that space with these groups, uh, um, and we need to engage them in order to have access. Uh, uh, we need to engage them also to make sure that uh, that they are treating people correctly. So the environment of of, of conflicts today uh, are, are very much changing, uh, and uh, and and we are also changing and adapting uh, with regard to this. Perhaps just one last. Uh, but but nonetheless, quite important development uh, is that uh, you know since 9/11, you have a whole series of wars that were kind of 
that that were kind of linked uh, to uh, be, well, if you go back after after World War Two, the bulk of the wars were you know um, either wars of liberation or war related to Cold War uh, confrontations between the East and the West, uh, between the uh, USSR and, 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 and the West. And, and, and a lot of the conflicts were proxy kind of conflicts huh? uh, until perhaps 9-11, that was a big shift. Uh, we started seeing um, all these wars related to the global confrontation uh, uh, and the global war on terror. Uh, Iraq, Afghanistan, and uh, you know some of the stuff happening in Somalia and elsewhere comes to mind. Today, we might be in the beginning of a new era. Uh, none of us know really what this era is going to look like, uh, but uh, with this war in Ukraine, we, it's clear that we are entering a new era where it's no longer, you know, something related to ISIS. It's no longer something related to the global jihad but perhaps something related to uh, global powers, strategic positioning, post-Cold War ramification and, uh, uh, and reorientations and muscle flexing, etc. Um, I hope that I am wrong, that this is not a new era and that uh, you know, uh, Ukraine will be an exception. Uh, but, um, but hopefully we won't, we won't see others uh, like this. Thank you so much, Mabadu, for that very elaborate response. And you've touched on so many interesting aspects. And, and it's interesting that in your explainer, it's increasingly imagined that, yes, there's, there's all the trends that you've, you've identified and just how humanitarian actors and humanitarian responses have had to adapt to, to that, um, those sort of trends at the operational level is interesting. And, but as you were speaking also, it occurred to me that Yes, the, the contemporary conflict landscape is, is vastly different from, like, like you were saying, with the emergence of new wars, um, the, the dominance of non-international armed conflicts, as opposed to, for instance, during the World War um, era, where that was an international armed conflict. And uh, as we saw, that was the emergence now of the Geneva, Geneva Conventions. Interestingly, now we have this phenomenon of new wars. We have um, interstate wars. We have very complex and protracted civil conflicts and, and a lot of them have transnational dynamics and, and proxy war dynamics, how that also complicates um, the issue of not only delivery of aid, but also how it brings in the geopolitical angling and, and how to manage just the multiplication and, and of actors um, involved in a particular conflict. So that's an interesting dimension, but it's, it's interesting also the extent to which history repeats itself. Because when you when you follow the, just the kind of um, media coverage that we've had about the Ukraine um, war, it's interesting because urban warfare presents um, a different set of challenges for the humanitarian actor. And it's also raising questions about, so we, we know about um, sieges being used as um, a key form of warfare, particularly during the, the, the ancient times. But it's, it's also emerging almost in this sense, when you look, for instance, at, at, at the kind of attention that cities like Mariupol and, and Kharkiv have raised and, and this very um, repeated calls for the creation of humanitarian corridors in Ukraine raises very interesting questions about the huge of sieges, the method of sieges as a method of warfare. But also closer to whom, another issue that I think we also need to talk a bit more on is the issue also of masturbation 
that that is emerging in the context of the conflict in Ethiopia, the region in the Tigray region, where there's been reports of of hunger um, and mass starvation also being employed as a as a weapon of warfare, particularly when 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 you talk about the issue of humanitarian blockade, the federal humanitarian blockade, um, hindering access for for humanitarian. Um, relief to get to to the most affected population in in Tigray. I think that's an interesting diversion. But in the context of this evolving um, landscape, one can then argue that this almost implies then logically that that comes with an additional set of challenges. It means that humanitarian needs are driven up by default. And this is another challenge, I think, for humanitarian action because it seems that rather than the gap between funding and needs shrinking um, as the years have gone by, it seems to be um, expanding even further and that many of the, the humanitarian responses are even failing now to, to get to the 50% funding mark. In fact, when you look at recent reports, it seemed as if um, funding for humanitarian action has flatlined in, in recent years. And, and I'm talking even before the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's interesting because uh, of despite these very high levels of donor contributions, there's a huge gap. I think something like twenty billion dollars gap that's still um, staring staring us in the face. And another risk multiplier that I think is important here is the climate related disasters. That, for instance, when you look at a situation that's what's happening in Grand Sud in in Madagascar, where we have um, a severe um, acute food insecurity. I mean, the highest category on the integrated food security phase, phase five. You have deteriorating food insecurity in Yemen, close to 20 million in need of, of assistance as of now. And and like you're talking about the Sahel, also how climate change has intersected with fragility, with conflict, and it's also creating, um, it's it's making the, 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 the situation there also take a life of its own in terms of adding to the to the humanitarian challenges in in um, in conflict zones. So I think it's, those are some of the, the, the trends that are, from when you were speaking, that seems in my mind occur to be very interrelated. And going up, going to that, I think what I'd like to, to, to also hear from you is, yes, we know about the funding gap, but do you see, for instance, humanitarians moving towards more innovative ways of trying to plug that that funding gap or is it a case where there has to be much more advocacy and we have to think a bit outside the box to try and see how to plug the the funding gap for for global humanitarian action hmm that's a that, that's a very good question huh? and, and 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 honestly um it, it's there's so many layers to this huh? so uh, the simplest answer is uh, yes, the needs are increasing. Uh, there is more actors on the ground, and there is a greater competition among um, shrinking part. Uh, this is the one hand, and the other hand is the the, the availability of, of 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 aid of of resources is not increasing at the at the rate of the increase of the needs. Huh? Because again, you know, we talked about the conflicts protracting. We're talking about new ones being added to it, and we're talking about uh, the consequences of other phenomena that are coming to compound uh, the the the, or, the already fragile uh, environment where conflict is taking place. Huh? We're talking about climate change. You talked about it earlier. 
it's it's not necessarily a cause of war, but it exacerbates uh, the suffering of people who live in in, in places and, and most places where the the the, 20, the ten we did the math the ten most affected countries in the world um, by climate change are uh, eight or seven of them are are also undergoing armed conflicts. Huh? So 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 they, so so you have not only the the, the, the the crisis related to the conflict in and of themselves, you have compounding uh, issues that that added to it. So so indeed that means that um, that that humanitarian actors are going to have to think innovatively uh, in ways to 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 fund humanitarian action. Uh, some are looking at new funding methods that uh, that look at how the private sector could be brought to bear. Uh, others are looking at different form of intervention themselves that are that are perhaps much more cost efficient and that are much more carbon neutral uh, so that uh, by virtue of assisting we are not being part of the problem uh, uh, these are all adjustments that that human so so I can imagine some some viewers are saying well can you be more precise so so one example is uh, the introduction of cash right? So in places like, let's say here, very close to here, Mozambique, uh, where we have uh, this, uh, th this northern part turned into an inferno uh, by, by these armed conflicts that uh, has just devastated that area. Uh, but at the same time, uh, in Pemba, in, uh, in, in, in many places, you have um, markets that are existing, you have uh, goods that could be bought on the market. So, so here you have eight agencies using cash uh, to, to support uh, displaced persons. Uh, um, what cash does, it, it, only, it not only you know, give a bit more dignity to the person being assisted in the sense that they choose what, they, what they're going to use the cash for, but it also reduces our pipeline. Imagine if we had to bring the food, bring the blankets, bring the tarpaulins, and bring, you know, uh, the from from asia from china and have a whole pipeline that bring that brings it to so it, it reduced the cost uh, of, of humanitarian aid and at the same time it reduces the carbon footprint huh? so innovations like that are ways of circumventing uh some of the new challenges but also um trying to achieve more with uh, with a little bit less huh? Uh, so, so these are these are ways we are we are we are we are we are sort of adjusting uh, to the new to the new realities. Uh, yes, and I think coming back to to also just some of the core principles that in humanitarian work, and I know the cardinal ones: uh, humanity, impartiality, um, and neutrality. I think it's important for me because we all know about the. The, how complex and how interrelated broader questions of, like we're talking about humanitarianism is also linked to the bigger question of peace building, to the bigger question also of um, of development. Uh, there's, there's very complex ties there. But, and also the promotion of human rights, particularly in a conflict zone where they, where we can see there's a situation of human suffering. I think of an, in, an interesting question that I would be keen on hearing your views are, is, when you look at, for instance, a situation like, let me let me bring it closer to home. What's happening in in, in the Tigray region? Do you think that yes, in as much as it's uh, a humanit um, humanitarian workers and humanitarian actors are supposed to be 
neutral in the sense of that's the principle that they're there to. But do you think that there are certain trade-offs, if I can call it that, that need to be made um, on one hand with regard to humanitarian responses and on the other hand with um, observing and protecting human rights? So, um, and, and here I think an interesting case in, in Ethiopia is the one that I can think of is where you saw the, the federal government um, sort of wanting to to shut out the the uh, Norwegian ref- refugee, I think it was the Norwegian refugee fund for speaking out about the, the atrocities that they were seeing in Tigray. And it's 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 to speak to us a little bit about that that dynamic and the interface between humanitarian um, action on one hand and, and human rights. On, on that hand, how do we sort of balance that that um, response? And I think once you've addressed that, then we can circle back to the bigger question about the humanitarian development nexus. Mm. Yeah, very good, very good, very good. Now, uh, thank you for for raising that. Obviously, I can't speak specifically to the case of uh, of, uh, of Ethiopia because we 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 have a, we have a dialogue with uh, with the parties there, and it's a, it's a bilateral and it's a confidential dialogue. But uh, but uh, it suffice to say that some of these principles that we adhere to, at least us in the Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, they are not negotiable. Huh? Um, our, our principle of neutrality and impartiality, these are our DNA. We don't take sides and we cannot take sides. And this is clear. We don't take sides, but we take action. That's what we say. And the second one is the, 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 the aid that we provide must be going to people who need it the most. Uh, now, obviously, this is a principle that, that is not always easy to implement else, everywhere. Uh, the reason why armed conflicts today and wars are, are, are complex and complicated for us is because certain governments have, have decided that, um, that because it's hard to win, militarily some of these wars uh, they need to to make it very hard on the population uh, it's you would be surprised if i tell you the most dangerous places to be in some of those conflicts uh, where we are working uh, is the hospitals hospitals are targeted systematically again it's a it's a way of of, of just brutalizing communities huh? um, denying access to aid workers uh, with the hope of um, of, of, of starving or, or, or just extending the suffering of the civilian population is also seen by some actors, unfortunately, as a way of waging war uh, and, 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 and con- trying to control humanitarian actors to be active in one side and not on the other is also a way of, uh, of, 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 of trying to, to fight a war. Uh, and this... Uh, this, this this makes our work harder because again you know we need to focus on and we want to focus on people who need our, our aid the most not just those who 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 the government or or, or the rebel groups etc decide that we should we should help uh, so those are some of the tough challenges that we have to face on the ground when we have to interact with governments and non-state armed groups um, but but these are these are these are these are challenges that are worth having. Um, um, I said earlier that we don't take side. It's partially true. We do take side, but the side that we take is always that of people who suffer. Uh, and, and, and and part of doing the advocacy on their behalf uh, 
the representation on their behalf means that we continue to engage with parties to conflicts with states, non-state armed groups, jihadists, rebels, etc., wherever they are, trying to find them and admonish them to, to uphold human dignity and allow us to, to really work in a neutral and impartial uh, manner. Uh, this is this is very important for, for, for you to know. Uh, another reason why violations of international humanitarian law um, is, is, is also uh, rampant is some, some, some fighters uh, are starting to understand, and these governments also are starting to understand in some extent, and this is the, the other extreme, uh, uh, that, uh, that winning the war is not necessarily, uh, not only a matter of capturing roads and bridges, uh, um, some governments have starting to understand that, and some some groups that it, it it means that you need to also win the hearts and minds of of people. Because again, as I said, the terrain of contestation between all these people, the groups, the, the fighters, the military, etc., is the civilian uh, environment itself. Huh? So so the the the, the struggle sometimes. Um, of the population is 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 is, is multifold. Sometimes they are being um, denied the humanitarian aid they should have. Uh, in other instances, they are being punished. Uh, they they are stuck between a rock and a hard place because they are being being dragged into the conflict by by one side or the other. You know, uh, we often hear on TV the distribution of weapons by the states. I mean, that's you, you know, you, you weaponize the civilian population, um, t t turn them against the, the, the non-state armed groups, um, or if, the civilian, if they refuse, then they are, you know, uh, on the bad books of, of, of the state. So being a civilian in 2022, in a place where there is a war, it's, yeah, it's, um, it's, it's complex and it's complicated and it's painful, it's hard. Uh? And, uh, and being a humanitarian actor in this day and age also requires you to, to, to think uh, critically, but to be innovative, um, to have a large heart, to be patient, uh, to be very diplomatic, uh, uh, to try to be convincing, uh, but also, yeah, to, 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 to stick to your principles, because at the end of the day, that's your, that's your um, uh, compass, uh, uh, and if you fail in that, then you are also dragged into a conflict, and then, then, uh, then, then you will just fail in your. You will not be able to achieve your objectives, uh, which is to, to protect and, and serve people affected. It sounds like a very, um, very fine line that that um, humanitarian workers have to, sort of, in the balancing act that they have to set out in. In just the kind of complexity that that is is the current um, landscape, just from what you're describing, it's it sounds like it's it's quite a, a um, an interesting balancing act, particularly when you're talking about um, aligning and, and sticking to those cardinal um, principles, the ones that govern humanitarian action at its core. And at the risk of also, I don't want to to to, to let us to get into the very abstract philosophical debates that have been happening in conference rooms about the development of both um, of the the future of both development and humanitarianism. But it's very interesting because even as we we are all interested in yes um, peace, we are interested in sustainable peace. We are also interested in impact, and that 
while humanitarians are keen on delivering need to the to the most um, affected populations and ensuring that it reaches where it, where it needs to be, there's also an interest at its core to ensure that there isn't a reversal of conflict, that we go back to the same, um, back to square one in the sense that um, the, the aid and, and, and the assistant goes to not, if, if you get what I'm saying. And this is where what you're talking about um, there's there's a greater focus on aligning, for instance, program um, programming cycles and delivery cycles between your your humanitarian actors and your development actors in in conflict zones, for instance. And this idea of um, also a triple nexus between uh, peace, development, and humanitarian, particularly as um, conflict actors and conflict resolution actors try try to push the resilience agenda. The, the idea of a whole of government approaches. We see humanitarians coming on board um, in, in, in the very many um, whole of government approaches that we see uh, being, being um, directed into conflict zones. And I think where I'm going with this question is what we've been touching on, and you also touched upon it in the beginning, the emergence of an incipient humanitarian development nexus. So this overlap between the delivery of humanitarian assistance and the provision of long-term development um, um, goal. So do you think that within this idea of a humanitarian development nexus, there is a risk of politicization um, with such an approach? And does this nexus then mean that, what does it mean for the humanitarian space? Does it mean that it's a constrainer or an enabler? Or does it simply mean that, as you were saying, humanitarians need to be um, quite nimble, quite adaptive? Um, in, in, in shifting along with the, the evolving landscape. So in as much as these are very two different sectors, there seems to be a nexus emerging, particularly when you look at this context. So um, talk to us a, a little bit about your thoughts about the emerging um, or the debate around the humanitarian development nexus that's that's coming to, to bear. Yes, thank you for that question. Uh, you know, <laughs> we at the International Committee of the Red Cross, we are... We, we are in 80 countries in, in, in the world. We are here in Africa in 28 countries. Um, we are running around the clock 24 hours every day trying to, to, to really just leverage uh, whatever we have to support people in need. Huh? So, so we are more in the action than in the theories for sure. Huh? And, and that's important to, to, to know. Um, now it's it's also hard to to have uh, the conversation at the abstract level uh, because um, I don't know two areas that are similar when it comes to uh, to, to the pres to the policy prescriptions and the, the, the even the humanitarian you know action that is taking place in there um, almost every situation is different every situation. Uh, require different forms of interventions. Huh? It is true that there is now the, 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 the kind of a consensus that humanitarian aid alone isn't enough. It's only keeping boats, you know, uh, from from sinking. Uh, we, uh, we, and, and we are not the, the ultimate long-term solutions everywhere. Even though in some some specific cases we are also engaged in very long term uh, multi million multi year projects, but at the end of the day uh, we are not that kind of answers. Huh? So 
So what, what people that we meet on the field, they need indeed it's security and we cannot provide them with security. They need uh, those long-term um, solutions that I alluded to. Some we can provide, others we are not equipped to, 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 to provide. So, so in many places, indeed, you have these, these three needs that, that, are, that are very apparent uh, for, for, for all. Um, and and it, 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 when you put them together, they go beyond our prerogatives as humanitarian actors. Huh? Uh, let's say you, you, you're talking about a territory X where you have the military who's providing the military solution, um, you know, going to fight and, and, and fight the groups and, 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 and all that. Um, others are saying, listen, yes, maybe, you know, it's your role as an army to go and do this, but let's remind the government that, you know, military and security answer alone doesn't solve the problem. Most of these wars that we see around the world, they have a, a subasma, they have, um, they, have, they, they, they have a root cause, and these needs to be addressed. Those root causes tend to be marginalization, discrimination, um, uh, you know, uh, it, it, the fact that some communities have been left out and they need to be brought back uh, uh, to, 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 to the productive uh, part of uh, countries, etc. So, so I don't know if you're following me, but the, what, what communities need is often some multi-layered solutions huh? that includes that way we have our role to play, you know, government have its role to play and others have their role to play. Our, our, what's important is that these roles are not mixed, you know. It's not for armies to do humanitarian work, you know, they should leave us to do that. Uh, we need to make sure also that the work we do is neutral and it's impartial and it's geared towards those in need. It's not people who are fighting, let's say, terrorism, who are also bringing us in uh, or supporting us to, to, as a pillar of their fight against terrorism. Uh, if, that, if we accept that, then, 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 then you can imagine how, how fighters and others will also see us as a wing uh, of a policy design uh, to fight them, and therefore we will be also a fair target for them. You know, so so yes, there is this triple nexus, etc. But we need to we need to look at it on a case by case basis. We need to look at it also with very clear head, clear eyes. You know, uh, and, and 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 break it apart, and 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 accept the role of each, and and make sure that they are not jeopardized. Right? And for us, our role is uh, is a neutral impartial role that we need to play and actors need to know that and uh, and we need to have that space to do that uh, now obviously the the cameras are turned uh, towards uh, ukraine um but um but but there are a lot of challenges for example uh, uh, you know here on the on the on the, on the continent of africa huh? that uh, that uh, that that we want to make sure that we address you know uh, with the same intensity that we are addressing the the, the crisis in, in in Ukraine, when 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 we are talking about displacement today, there's 21 or almost 22 million people across the continent who are who are brooded from their homes, uh, and this is in sub-Saharan Africa alone, uh, uh, and and they need to be they need to be supported, they need to be aided, they need to be. Um, uh, we have a looming food crisis in uh, in in. Uh, 
many parts of Africa today, especially in the East, uh, we have the rising cost of pretty much everything. Uh, and, and let's not forget, we are, at, we are just well, barely trying to come out of COVID-19 with all um, the impact it has had on our economies, uh, on, on every single household across the continent, but especially on those households that exist in places where the state is not or barely present. Uh, so we, we, we do have a lot of challenge ahead of us that, uh, that, 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 that requires our, 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 our attention. And, and, and for us in, in, in the Red Cross, in the ICRC, um, we, we want to make sure that we keep our eyes uh, on, on, on the people who suffer, no matter where they are globally. Huh? And this is why one of our cardinal principles, one of our fundamental principles is humanity. Uh, um, it means that uh, wherever people are suffering, that's where we are. And that's where we want to go and that's where we want to go and support. Uh, so uh, so uh, that's really what I wanted to say on, 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 on these nexuses, the need to, to just separate uh, the roles, the responsibilities, uh, and make sure that we are not driven by the, by the limelight. We are not driven by the donors. We are not driven by political or strategic or ideological motivation of, of, uh, of states or, or, or the great powers of the world. But what drives our action uh, is the, 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 suffering, the suffering people across the world. I agree with you, certainly, and it's true what you're saying, that there's a need for principled um, frontline humanitarian action to to remain a political, to remain neutral, to remain um, uh, sort of trained and focused on, on needs. Because if we stick to that, the principles like you're saying, then it means that it creates that important space for, for peace to be possible and creates a space where for instance if if your laws of humanitarian law if your international humanitarian law, laws are observed then it creates it almost becomes um a, a vital factor in ensuring that the 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 fragmented or fragile environments move towards um greater stabilization for instance and it, it ensures that there's a sense of almost a buffer against uh development reversals as opposed to getting um, drawn into the very um, contested waters and, and, and the politicized waters that would would have um, a negative or a counterproductive um, effect all around. And I think let's now pivot to what you were, you've just touched on briefly. And I think it's important for us to talk about that from, from a humanitarian perspective. So you, you are right in saying, yes, the the cameras and the limelight, in, and I would say even oversized attention that's been given to, to the Ukraine war. Um, and it's interesting because I think it seems to signal what's been largely referred to as the mass media effect or the CNN effect, and where where also the, the, the kind of media coverage also frames the broader narratives around the coverage of certainly humanitarian crisis and, and almost privileges some coverage um, over others. It's interesting just when you contrast that, for instance, with what we, we don't want to be forgotten crisis, the crisis in Yemen, the crisis in Ethiopia, in Ethiopia the crisis also in Afghanistan and even in, in Myanmar. But do you think that the aid bonanza, as it's been called, um, and the kind of response that we've seen in, in the Ukraine war, would it possibly cause 
a diversion of resources from from the other humanitarian um, crisis that we have on the ground and um, and also I think tagged and linked to that question is like you were saying we shouldn't forget the 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 bigger questions of of all this other crisis that we need to have our eyes on but what then is the role or, or or how the strategic relevance of some conflicts begin to shape this this mass media or the CNN effect um in covering certain certain conflicts and not others so talk to us about what is the risk of diversion of resources and whether um the kind of effect that the mass media um coverage is also having on 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 the trajectory and coverage of of certain um conflicts it's a good question huh? um but i think it's uh, it might be too early to tell uh, uh what would be the consequences of the Ukrainian war in terms of the the the, the repartition of of aid money across the world? Uh, but let's just stick to what we see, uh, and uh, and then and then and then we time will will, will eventually tell. From from what I see uh, um, across Europe, for example, um, there 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 seem to be. Um, a new wave of empathy towards people who suffer from armed conflict. Uh, this is globally. This is the global effect of this 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 war. Even though there were very unfortunate instances of of uh, of Africans who've suffered there uh, to 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 cross and they've they felt uh, they've experienced they've they've shared their experience and it was horrible. Uh, but in the large scheme of things. Um, what's the, the suffering of the Ukrainian people is, is massive and, and the response of solidarity uh, and sympathy and empathy towards you know, the plight of those who, whose lives have been turned upside down is also equally massive. Huh? Uh, let's hope that that, that, will also, um, that will also translate to greater respect for, for people who migrate from, from, from different parts of the world uh, for refugees across the world, um, for 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 people who, by and large, suffer from from armed conflicts. Huh? So I'm trying to be hopeful that uh, perhaps you know Ukraine will be a declic that will actually uh, increase uh, humanitarian uh, aid uh, more so than just um, divert what was supposed to go elsewhere uh, to 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 the Ukraine. Um, for us in the ICRC, I can give you an example. Um, yes, we are beefing up our operations in Ukraine, but we are beefing up our operations in Afghanistan. Um, Afghanistan is now a massive delegation. Uh, we, it was already one of our largest. It's, it's going to be even, you know, we, we are almost doubling our, our support to the Afghan people now uh, because of what's going on there. Um, the Sahel, we are increasing massively our, our, our support uh, from Mali to... to, to um, to Somalia, we are increasing our support to, to people in, in, in Sub-Saharan Africa. Um, we are increasing our budget basically in, let me think, in 15 African countries, if I'm not mistaken, huh? uh, as we speak. And this is a decision that has been taken um, pretty much during the time of the Ukrainian war. Huh? So just to tell you that at least from, from our perspective as at the, at the International Committee of the Red Cross, we are not in the logic of doing less elsewhere to be able to do more in Ukraine. To the contrary, we're trying to, to, to respond where, where, wherever we think the needs are the greatest. Huh? Uh, 
and and I think this is this is something important to to, to note. Um, voila. Um, what was the second part of your question? Other the other part of the question. I think you've you've covered it because you were talking. About, I was just asking about how there's that risk of potential diversion of resources, but I think also it's from you from the way you've answered it it, it sort of highlights the, the the point or drives home the point that the allocation of humanitarian aid and here i'm talking apart from the icrc as you've said the allocation of of aid in one sense is almost a function of several it's a combination of, of factors it could be the the levels of unmet needs it could be political concerns, but it could, could be also the more contentious issues of strategic relevance for particular actors and not others. And maybe this is what explains just the kind of, of attention that we've seen being given um, to Ukraine and almost not forgetting this idea of um, neighborly solidarity or even the emotive appeal that the Ukraine crisis has had for, the, for its European neighbors in the sense that it's a conflict that's closer to home for them. And hence, I think a lot of international actors have used that emotive appeal to rally the kind of, of resources that, that have been directed at Ukraine. So I think it just your answer highlights the kind of um, the complex sort of calculus that informs that, that kind of, of effect. And I think, the, so, so you've answered it to a large degree, but you've also touched on, 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 on the other aspect of the question and you've brought in the idea of Africa. So Africa shouldering or bearing the, 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 larger, the lion's share of a lot of the ICRC's um, uh, budget just because of the kind of, of um, attention that's needed in terms of taking need weights, need relief weights and, and humanitarian responses where it's needed and ensuring that it's distributed um, across the, the, the African um um, landscape, so I think we can now um, sort of wrap it up, and and I'll move to what I'd say is a is a very general question, and here it's I'd like to to I mean I would I would it would be remiss of me not to draw on your years of experience in the field and your expertise in this particular humanitarian sector. What would you say would be your policy calls um, that you want to emphasize just in taking thinking about the future of, of um, international humanitarian action. And why I'm asking this question as you think about it is because we've seen that in each report on, on for instance, the compliance with international human, humanitarian law that the ICRC produces, it's, it's emphasized that the, the biggest and the, the, the most important challenge to um, IHL is the lack of respect for for it. So how 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 can we promote improved compliance for for IHL going forward? Because um, violation in a way begets more violation, like what we've been seeing in Syria, for instance. So how do we how do we promote and ensure improved compliance? And um, talk to us about just some of what you'd say nuggets of wisdom from your end. Um, as, as a practitioner and somebody who's been in, involved in this sector for, for several years, what would you like to highlight as, as um, we draw this episode to a close? Hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much uh, for, for that last question. Um, you know, when we, when we talk about humanitarian actors, um, you know, the minds goes to the Red Cross, the MSF, the, the, some of the UN agencies, uh, some of the local uh, NGOs, uh, but it's always good to remember that the, the biggest donor 
of humanitarian aid are the, the, the local populations themselves. Uh, everywhere I've worked, the amount of solidarity that I see on the ground, even before the arrival of humanitarian actors, is staggering. Yeah? Um, for example, in, 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 in Northeast Nigeria, when, when 2.5 million people were displaced from their homes, 90% of them were welcomed and hosted by communities in Northeast Nigeria, communities that were also very vulnerable before the crisis started. But yet, they show incredible level of generosity and solidarity. Uh, and I think this is important to, to, to remember. This is the same thing that's happening in Cabo Delgado and in many parts of Africa, where you don't see large refugee camps or IDP camps. People are just helping people. Uh, uh, so, so for me, those are, are, are the biggest donor of humanitarian action. Um, they, they show the best of African humanity. When the cameras go to Northeast Nigeria or to Cabo Delgado, etc., they zoom in on the horrors and the, the atrocities, and it's true, uh, and, uh, and the, uh, the lack of compliance of, of humanitarian, uh, international humanitarian law. And that's important. We need to put a spotlight on these. Uh, but we need to also equally put a spotlight on Africa's tremendous humanity, you know, uh, that, that is really shown in these places that are really complex and, 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 and violent. This is one thing. Now, when it comes to global adherence to IHL, um, well, I, we take it as a challenge because obviously we, we are the guardians of IHL and uh, it is our obligation to engage with, pe with people fighting, um, and, but also to make sure we clarify the law and we continue to disseminate it uh, with the support of governments. Um, IHL is one of the most universal body of law that, is, that has been, the Geneva Convention has been ratified by every single country. So a lot of our work that is not on the spotlight takes place um, in, in, the, in the boardrooms, the meeting rooms, um, at the UN. I was in Iswatini not long ago where I met the, with the Minister of Foreign Affairs and I talked about the need to ratify certain important um, international treaties. This is what we call humanitarian diplomacy. This, is, this needs to continue and we need to continue to connect with African states and make sure at least the, the corpus of the law is well um, ratified, it's domesticated, and it's taught in the universities, in the police, in the military academies, and that those who potentially will be either leaders of countries or militaries fighting fighting on the battlefield, they know it. Now, this is the minimum. This is the minimum we have to do. The second thing is we need to engage more with Africans and, and, and people around the world about the universality of, of international humanitarian law. You know? um, I have with my colleagues here, we've done some 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 fantastic research to show some of to show it how most of the provisions of international humanitarian law were practiced already on the continent of Africa uh, by our ancestors way before the arrival of the colonialists. Uh, this shows that respecting uh, the lives and dignity of people, uh, adhering to international humanitarian law and human rights law. Uh, is not something that is imposed on us by the West. It is not something that is invented by the West. To the contrary, these are parts and parcels of African customs and practices 
way before the West came to, 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 to Africa. And, 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 and by illustrating this, we show our values, but we also show the universality of human rights, the universality of international humanitarian law. And this is important. Huh? Uh, last but not least, I mean, the, the, the groundwork that, uh, that I've done uh, for the last decade and that many, many, many hundreds of my colleagues are doing in the field now, um, um, crossing lines, um, going to meet um, people across front lines, meeting rebels, meeting jihadis, meeting military on the front line, discussing with them on the plight of civilians. This is something that needs to continue. We need to be innovative. We need to find new and, 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 and captivating ways to, 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 to convince them that um, there is nothing more counterproductive than violating uh, people's dignity in the conflict. Because then, um, even if you win a war, you will not win the peace. Yeah? And, um, and winning the peace is the most important thing because that's what allows you, uh, after the last bullet is fired, uh, to, 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 to reconcile communities and people. Uh, and the, the only way you can win the peace, the only way you can achieve that uh, is to make sure that, that during the war you were upholding human dignity. Uh, you were leaving space for, for, for that crucial moment. Uh, and you are not um, posing or acting in a way that makes the cycle of violence completely unbreakable. Today in Africa, unfortunately, in far too many places, the cycle of violence are almost seemingly unbreakable because just each side have committed two uh, heinous of crimes and atrocities. Huh? And, and, and the role of, 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 of the ICRC uh, is to, 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 to just be on the ground and, and, and make sure that uh, the fighters are, are, are sensitized to those, uh, to those, uh, to those challenges. Um, and, and, and I'm quite proud that I'm, 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 I'm part of that uh, and, uh, and that uh, across the African continent we have space to, 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 to do that uh, and to engage um, and, and to, to, yeah, to, to share uh, our reading of the law and also to remind fighters that, uh, that yes, this is not about Geneva, this is not about uh, the West, this is really, really what Africa is about. When, 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 when the Mali Empire um, Emperor, um, the, the biggest one in Mali history, the one who founded the Mali Empire, Sunjata Keita was uh, enthroned. Um, the the the, the so-called uh, Monday Charter was proclaimed. Uh, this is the charter that is contemporary to the Magna Charter, uh, uh, and very few Africans know about it. And this is this was a charter that proclaimed the dignity of humanity, you know, that limits the the, the powers of a ruler. That that it was one of the first human rights charter ever. Uh, proclaim um, in the world, uh, and this happened right here in southern Af in in sub-Saharan Africa. And I can name you many parts of Africa where constitutions were written, where um, the, the, the 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 powers of the rulers were 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 were, were limited, uh, and the right of people were well proclaimed and and, and carved in stones. So, so we are not talking about a body of law that is foreign that is foreign to us. We are just trying to 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 to, to remind people that war has always had limits in Africa, um, and and there's no way it should be otherwise. Rather.
So I thank you really for, for this invitation, Faith. Uh, and, uh, and I hope that um, there have been some light uh, shed on some, some issues of concern to, to us, but also to the people, uh, to many, many millions of people across the continent. Um, and, uh, and I hope to be back, to, to be invited back uh, to the podcast. Thank you so much, Mamadou. It has certainly been a very illuminating conversation. Um, thank you for the time. And I'd also, and I think a lot of my listeners would also agree with me um, in, in also just extending our immense gratitude to the, the work that you're doing. You um, as also a, 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 a member and an employee of the ICRC, the kind of work you've done also as an individual in the field. And we also want to commend the ICRC for the work it's doing, not only as a lodster for the for IHL, broadly speaking, but also in, in, in pushing forward this um, agenda for humanity and pushing forward the bigger agenda about um, the restraint of war, as you've so um, eloquently put it, and in, in just constantly reminding us about finding our humanity even in the midst of war and ensuring that um, civilian lives are protected. So that is not light work. Um, sometimes it's it's not um, rewarding work, but we thank you for, for the kind of work that the ICSC and, and um, its staff and its supporters are doing on the ground. Um, we are deeply appreciative of it. We thank you for the insights that you've brought to this conversation, which has have left us with so many profound thoughts and, and we've, we've learned um, incredibly. And certainly we look forward to having you back to talk about much more um, detail about the happenings in, in the humanitarian sector. Thank you and good luck in all your endeavors. And we wish you many more years of success, even as we mark the 160th anniversary of, of the ICRC. Thank you. Thank you very much. Also, want to thank you the list to the listeners for tuning in in this episode, and I'd encourage the listeners to um, like, share, and leave a review wherever they listen to podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>